2: Yeah. Welcoming folks, uh, Millennial Money in the house uh, here to talk about stocks, the market, crypto, Bitcoin bouncing back, uh, all the drama, the great reset that's going on right now, the great reset and uh, so much more. Uh, how are you guys doing tonight, Graham, Andre in the house? How are you
3: gentlemen we're doing? We're
4: back in the old format. What's up, everyone? Feels Just like I I don't think yesterday
3: we were doing this. I want to, so. by the way, two things. Uh, first of all, I have to address my horrible internet connection. I don't know what's going on, but like just now it decided to act horribly. So if I freeze or whatever, I want to apologize. Uh, Next week, a hundred percent, it'll be fixed. And I see everyone asking, where is Kevin? Where is Kevin? Where is Kevin? I think we should uh, address where Kevin is right after we thank our sponsor (laughs) (laughs) FTX. I'm not going to end that. that. No. Kevin posted a video. You can see it on his channel. I think it's about a, two weeks ago. Um, so you could hear it from him. But I'll reiterate what he said in that video. He has chosen to voluntarily step down from millennial money for right now. And uh, we've supported that decision. And we always, he's, he's invited to come on anytime he wants to. But for the time being, he's chosen to uh, to put this on. Focus on know. making money.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So anyway, you could watch his video where he explains it. again, he posted about a week ago, but uh, he knows he's always he's always invited on whenever he wants to. So uh, you know Kevin, if you're watching this, the door is always open, but for now it's uh, it's gonna be us3. Yes. So now let's talk about
4: the great market
2: reset explained.
4: How do we explain the great market reset? What's going on, you guys?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, there's, there's talk that, you know, no one's going to own real estate in the future and it's just going to be yeah. held by BlackRock and the big institutions. And uh, essentially everybody's just going to be renters. And the way the real estate market's getting, it's it's getting steamy. And I don't know if this continues on, but a lot of folks are looking at it and they're saying, my gosh, you know, how can you afford a home? And, and you know, I was talking with my dad recently and we were talking about the poverty line. And what we were talking about essentially is if you imagine you make $50,000 a year and you, let's say you got a, a wife and you got two, three kids at home, how do you make it on $50,000 a year? And, um, you know, then we were talking about like, imagine $40,000 a year and, and with how m- much rents are going up now and how expensive homes are getting, you know, I think the poverty line is not the 20 something thousand. They really talk about. I think it's, especially if you got a family that's tough, that's really tough. Yeah, this is a good point. Uh, do you
4: guys, can any of you throw on uh, just graphics on the screen? Do we have that or is that Alex? Um, um,
3: Alex Alex might be able to. We could ask him. Um, okay.
4: So okay. So, did you guys look at the Fred St. Louis for median home sale prices? So we've just had an inflection down, but the last reading in Q3 was 411000 Jeremy, so now it's $408,000, which for a $50,000 a year income, that's a ridiculously high price. Like I remember when I was making $60,000 a year and I was looking at homes in the $300,000 range and I was like, there's no way I'm going to pay five times my annual salary. Like I don't feel comfortable with that. I know California is yeah. different where like five times is more acceptable, but here in Vegas, like we aim for like three, three X for, for a three X that's a $150,000 home. And in Vegas, you're not going to find anything under one hundred fifty thousand dollars unless it's like an apartment.
3: Yeah. Yep. The issue, though, is that interest rates are so much higher than they are today. So, so it, it's it's difficult to say, you know, this income multiplied by three—that's the home that you could afford. Because if interest rates are twenty percent versus zero, let's just say, I mean, that's going to have a substantial impact in your payment every month. So, the lower True. the payments are going to be every month, I think the more home people could that's, afford that's true it.
4: but what was the interest rate in like 2000 I don't know 14 was, wasn't it like three or four percent or something like that uh,
3: about yeah about th- yeah about probably three and a half to four and a half give or take uh I know some loans were approaching five if you were like you know subprime or you, yeah. you didn't have a great credit score but, but yeah three to five yeah there
4: it is but but median home sale prices in like 2014 if you mouse over it like 2000 I want to say it was like closer to $200,000, which I mean, you're telling me like a 2% decrease in interest rates is a, is a, I don't know, a 2X in prices? That just doesn't seem reasonable.
3: Yeah. But then you also, you also have to keep in mind a shortage of building materials, a lot right. of zoning restrictions. They're not building yeah. enough houses. And I'm sure I'm we're relying. also seeing a lot of, we're seeing a lot of migration from one state to another. So everyone in California, it's like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna move to Las Vegas,
0: yeah. I'm buy up
3: their real oh, estate wow. there because <laughs> compared to Los Angeles. So, yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly not helping. It's not helping. All these Californians moving to my city now.
4: But <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what I'll say: Vegas, anyway, is such a transient city. Like, I, I've never, I've never seen home prices be this high for this long. So it'd be interesting to see. price is ever correct this year with interest rates going up but that that's the other question is like if interest rates go up are they really going to fight inflation that much like 0.25 half a percent increase in the rates is that really going to fight off a seven percent inflation like no
2: and the other thing is uh, the fed is so not incentivized to really raise rates in any any meaningful way just for the simple fact that what that does to the federal debt and the amount of interest the US government has to pay for every, you know, half a percent or every one percent the you know interest rate goes up. It's it, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it's some astronomically high number on just the interest that the US government, because we have so much debt in this country, it's it's out of control essentially. Right. So yeah. um that's just an, another reason why, you know, this this fantasy of like, oh, the Fed would ever raise rates to five, 10% or something like that. It's like yeah, that's not very likely. Let's just put it that way.
0: No, Jeremy. Yeah. Jimmy,
3: just, to- yeah. Go, ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I just don't think inflation is going to stay this high. I've I've always no. believed that. I've always thought it's going to be worse than they expect. It's going to be longer than they expect. But to me, it's like a lot of these things, supply chain issues are, are really beginning to alleviate. Like I was reading today, that mm-hmm. shipping container costs. Are down 30% from just a few months ago. That's great. So already shipping is getting a little bit less expensive. And the Los Angeles port is 40% less congested than it was six months ago. 40% in six months. I don't think it's getting worse. I think if anything, it's starting to get better. And I think with that, inflation is going to get, we can't see 7% inflation forever. So I think the Fed is kind of kind of playing both sides here they're trying to raise rates and look good long enough I think for for inflation to start deflecting downward and then they don't have to take as aggressive an, of an approach that's what I think yeah, yeah. Um,
4: with regards to interest rate Jeremy uh if interest rates go up do they affect small caps more than they do like large caps obviously so if if rates go up are you anticipating small caps to get hurt a little bit more
2: not really. Um, a lot of it comes down to if a company is, is, uh, you know, more debt ridden or has to raise capital all the time or is in a position where they're going to have to take a bunch of debt out. And sometimes small caps are in that situation, but there's other times where they're not. Um, mm. so you can't really pin it like that. Something Graham just brought up about the, the, you know, uh, container, you know, containers for shipping coming way down. That's something that if you want to think about, oh, there we go. I like that chart there. If you want to think about it from this perspective, right? Whoa, we got we got completely removed. Alex I just, just did, yeah. Whoa.
3: Oh, you know what? Whoops, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> there. I'm not gonna touch it. I was messing with it. I thought I could okay. make it better. I'm just not gonna do anything.
2: Okay. So, so yeah, something happened there. Oh my gosh. Pinch, uh, into, well, like, Pinch okay. into it but, if you can. Make it closer to me. Uh yeah. Oh, there, there we is. go. Nice. Oh man. Okay, we're up. So, um, yeah, th- I think that's something that, if you're thinking about, uh, from perspective of being a going from a headwind for companies' earnings to actually a tailwind, something like this is is really big. Because imagine you're a company that you know you have to use containers all the time. Your container costs come down. Guess what? If you went up on your customers, more than likely you're not bringing back down, um, your price, right? You're going to keep your price high. So, which means these companies' EPS in the back half of this year could end up coming in really, really strong. As costs come down, prices stay high, they're in a position where their earnings could actually end up going up quite a bit. So I don't think that's a that's something a lot of the bears are really even factoring and the short sellers on the market. I don't think they're even factoring this in. Um, so it goes from a massive like headwind to also a, a tailwind behind you, right? That's,
3: so that's a great point, but I don't think prices will continue to increase at that 7% rate. Let's just say Everywhere, everything, wages, prices, everything increases by seven percent. I think it just lifts the baseline up, and it's, then it could stay there. Then there needs to be another, uh, another, another push for prices to go even higher, and another catalyst that would make it do that. But like I know, at least for myself, if like I, I've been operating at a loss now selling coffee because coffee prices are going up, so we're raising prices. But if coffee prices go down, we're going to see that as a time where like, wow, now we could actually make some money. We're not going to bring down costs. I mean, obviously, we'll yep. do the occasional sale, but it's a good mm-hmm. way to pad the uh, the bank account a little bit for a time to uh, you know compensate you for all the times you didn't make anything.
2: Yeah, it's it's like if if Procter and Gamble goes up on toilet paper and paper towels and everything, and Kimberly Clark does as well, right? They're not bringing back down the cost. They're going to keep that price the same and uh, they'll end up just, you know, uh, getting the profit. Now, somebody, uh, I, I'm going to try to pay attention to the chat every once in a while, too, and, and see any questions and whatnot. Uh, somebody said, I believe we're in a new era that everyone in the world is going to start paying attention to what the Fed does and how the decision affects themselves. The Fed is in hot water like it's never been before. I, I'll just say this. I think the the Fed's always, you know, for me at least being in the stock market, the Fed's always been a center of attention. Ever since I got started, they always are talking about on CNBC and there's certain time periods that they're talked about more. What's the Fed gonna do? I think it's just because retail and more retail investors are in the market now and the individuals are more educated than they have been before and they're paying attention to all this stuff. I think they pay attention more, but to be quite honest, uh the Fed's always been a center of attention ever since I st- got started in the market in 08-09. So right. I was thinking about this, though, you guys. So back in the 70s, when Paul
4: Volcker was the chairman, right, when he raised rates to whatever it was, Um, 20% was it? Something ridiculous? Um, Back then, like we paid attention to the Fed, but we didn't have social media. So imagine if you were Paul Volcker and you were walking on the street. Do people really know who you are? Chances are probably not. Whereas if I saw, if like pretty much anyone, if they see Jerome Powell on the street, just because of social media, because of YouTube, because like we all kind of lightly poke fun at him. If you are the Fed chair, like you have to give in to a little bit of populism because your face is plastered everywhere. You don't Mm -hmm. want to be that guy that tanks the economy. So I think times are different now when Paul Volcker could have gotten away with it in the 70s because just there was no social media. No one knew what the dude looked like nowadays. (laughs) Like. You just don't want to have that target on your back. So it makes sense why the Fed kind of has to play into public perception. So Mm -hmm. it it kind of makes sense why they would have to just kind of, you know, do it slowly. But my question is, uh, do you guys think that consumers are going to spend more this year than they did last year? Because it seems like like with pent up demand last year, there's no way that we're going to spend more this year. So wouldn't GDP kind of inflect to the negative this this year and potentially even next year? if that's the case if we get two quarters right negative growth then that's technically a recession even though it's a paper recession because we're still you know employment is still at an all-time high pretty much uh, you know incomes are pretty much at an all-time high it's still a paper recession but but spending is going to be lower so gdp should also be lower
2: yeah it's hard to say you know uh, i've paid attention to everybody that's you know important in the market pretty much as far as their earnings go and i don't know of a company that expects revenue to decline this year every Mm. single company i track you know apple didn't give specific guidance but they said they expect to grow google same thing amazon and meta both brought down numbers but they're still expected to grow um so you know even paypal that that stock got hit but they're still expected to grow like 15 percent this year i think every single stock even corsair so corsair reported after the bell today They said they're gonna their their midpoints around five or six percent growth this year, and that's one of those stocks that was like chalked up to like, oh, it's only stimulus, and it's because everybody's forced to be at home. And then of course they're still expected to grow this year. So yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not totally gonna buy into the whole you know these companies aren't gonna grow, the economy is not gonna grow. I think it could actually be a nice growth year, especially. If you have mm. things like mask mandates go away, Rona numbers go down, and uh, the economy truly fully opens up, which I think is a good pr- uh, possibility in the springtime. If you, I don't know yeah, if you guys seen law in Europe, but they're opening up big time in Europe right
4: now. Yeah, and the
3: jobs
2: report that came out when we added how much, like four hundred thirty thousand
4: jobs, is way above expectation. I think it was four
3: hundred thirty thousand. Yeah, so we're down to three point nine percent unemployment which is the lowest that we've seen basically since prior to the pandemic. And if you go all the way back to the 1960s, we're at the same unemployment rate we saw back then. Yeah. You know, unemployment rate has always been almost always been higher than like 4.2%. So the fact that we're at 3.9, I think is incredible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we have right here. So we're basically at where we were prior to the pandemic, which is 3.6 at the lowest. Then we have another low right around the uh, uh, right before 2000. And prior to that, unemployment has not been this low since the 1960s.
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The labor market's tight. And um, somebody sent me something from, uh, you know, I don't think it's really public material, uh, but somebody sent me something about Amazon uh, corporate employees, like certain employees' uh, salaries getting bumped to 350. 350 K minimum from 150 K. So, you know, wow. yeah.
3: you know, what I found yeah. interesting, Home Depot is even trying out a next day job offer. So if you don't have a job and you want to work the next day, Home Depot will, will have a 24 hour turnaround on applications. So you could begin Whoa. start working immediately. I'm in. I thought that was genius. <laughs> that is yeah. great. For somebody who wants a job, come on, come in tomorrow.
0: Yeah. If you cool. want to
3: work, you got a job.
0: Jeez, that's sick, yeah, that, so that's just, cool.
4: 467,000 jobs last month. That's nuts. It's this, It's called the strongest economy in nearly 40 years. That's nutty. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess yeah. it doesn't seem like we're slowing down.
2: Well, the, the other thing it does kind of lead to is I think it leads to some anxiety of like, we're at the top and what's only down from here. And so I think that that's some of the anxiety in the market where they're like, Oh, you know, it can't get better than this. It's like, if you're at like, let's say 7% unemployment and you're seeing this trend get better, you're like, we can get to 4%. If you're at three, 4%, you can't really get lower than that. That's like, you know, uh, there's always going to be like a percent or two that's unemployed just for various reasons. So I think that, that freaks a lot of people out. They're like, it can't get any better. It has to get worse from here.
0: We that should ask would people the comments
4: to let us know if they think that we've hit the top yet or not just because sometimes like we're talking to each other and it's hard to gauge like what people really think but you're right jeremy like whenever people think that yeah we're at the top we're going to go down that's precisely when that doesn't happen so <laughs> it's interesting i'd love to know in the comments do people think we've hit a top or um we come yeah. back up it should be interesting
3: and it does seem like a con- the common sentiment is that, like, how do we get better from here? We've already kind of peaked. Interest rates are only going up now. We're only getting worse. So what's there to look forward to? And I, I do tend to agree to a certain extent. I mean, yeah, I don't think interest rates are going any lower. It's going to be tough to get an unemployment lower, although you could do it. Uh, earnings are probably not going to be as good as they were with stimulus, but they could still be decent.
2: Well, you know, since, since 08, 09, the one really big weak point that we've always had, right? It was like unemployment rate kept dropping, but wages never really went up in any meaningful way. And everybody constantly look at the wage growth and they're like, okay, yeah, unemployment's low, but look at wages they are not really growing. And so we're finally at a, a point now where because the labor force is so strong that there's pretty much no choice. But wages have to continue to rise and rise and rise until eventually the economy breaks. Right. Whenever that is, whether that's this year or next year, or five years or 10 years from now. So at least people should be excited about wage growth. The problem with wage growth is you, de- you then worry about inflation. And it's like, OK, if everybody makes 10 percent more than they did last year, do they buy more stuff now, or, or what happens? Well, with speaking that,
3: right? speaking of buying stuff, Jeremy, we should talk about cryptocurrency very briefly because not only has Bitcoin rallied now to like it, it, what did it hit a high of like forty four thousand dollars recently, all that yep. Ethereum I was buying in the in the in the twos all of a sudden you now went to like thirty four hundred. However much it went up, I was shocked. But it's a good chance if you're interested in buying cryptocurrency, we got the sponsor of today's episode, FTX. And you could use our link down below in the description. They're one of the largest and most complete cryptocurrency apps in the world with more than 6 million users who buy, sell, and trade both NFTs and cryptocurrencies all in one place for less than the competition. They have no fixed fees on uh, transactions, no ACH fees, no withdrawal fees, and no NFT fees on some of the top Ethereum and Solana collections. So if you're interested in signing up, I highly recommend them down below in the description, and not only that, you guys might remember the OG people. They used to be Block Folio. I used yeah. to use back in like 2017. <laughs> and they were like the, the number one spot to go and track your entire account. And uh, yeah, exactly. So you could use the link. But I used to track everything from there. So they have more than 10,000 different options to track. And they're one of the easiest places if you're into NFTs. Uh, like I know you are, Andre, buying your fancy Spider-Mans. Hey, but. Hey, hey. Uh, You'd be able to buy NFTs on there and you got uh you get free crypto on every trade over ten dollars.
4: Yeah. You see this? I got this board ape there. Wait. <laughs> Daniel, I can't show it, it's not in focus. <laughs> what? Not, not a board ape. I've had this since like high oh. school. <laughs> it's like a <laughs> I was like,
0: you got
3: that from FTX? <laughs>
4: wow. I've got cool with that though. Wait, 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 wait. Hey. The battery on this still works. Wait, you guys, Whoa. it's like, that. Cool. the colors change. It's, it's so cheesy. I love it. There we go. <laughs>
3: but so anyway, so with FTX, we, we obviously, we have to talk briefly about crypto. This is something that yep. I've been uh, watching really closely. And it seems like, and maybe you know more than I do about this, Andre. It seems like really, I don't want to say for no reason at all, but it's just out of nowhere. The price went from 37000 to forty. 3?
4: What What is it at? No, I haven't checked. If you haven't checked in like an hour. Yeah, it, it seemed like to, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, it seemed to coincide with when, uh, who ruled it? I forget if, I know it's not Congress. I don't think it was Congress. But uh, earnings on on um, staked coins do not consider it as taxable income. So, so you don't have to pay income on uh, coins that you earn until you sell. So mm. you know, that was a, a really positive sign, because I, I at this point I really thought like if I'm earning money from just keeping my money staked or just put away, and earning interest on it, I thought I had to pay taxes on
3: that income. But it's not
4: technically oh, considered income until you sell.
3: It's so t- here here's where the nuance gets in. It was yeah. uh, it was because of a case from a couple who sued yeah. the IRS a few years yeah. ago saying that they staked their coins, but they got paid back in more of that token. So it's imagine staking Ethereum and and you stake it for five years and you get back one Ethereum, one extra Ethereum. Are you taxed on that at the time you get the Ethereum? The IRS concluded for that couple, it -hmm. was a no until they actually realize it. I think this is going to turn out to be a whole can of worms because, not only now is not everyone's going to say that they don't know tax on it, but the IRS is going to have to set a precedent of, of what situations you could do that, what situations you can't, how they ta- It's I think it's going to be a giant
4: mess. Oh, no, I, think, I think this is good news. I, th- I think that sets, the, that is the precedent. That does tell people I'm not, I don't have to pay taxes on my on my earned coins. Like that makes sense. You don't pay it until you
2: sell it. Uh, I yes. just think the biggest flex is suing the IRS. That's the <laughs> That is B.A. Suing the IRS. <laughs> Dang, man. Yeah, and it was over when
3: a $3,000 bill. You would think that the that the legal fees would be $20,000 for doing that, for a 3000 But you know what? To, to prove a point, I think they did quite a good job at that. But Jeremy, I mean, in, in terms of your point, though, let's say we're talking about a dividend. You could pay the dividend and you buy more of that stock. You still have, mm-hmm. to, pay uh, dividend, you have to pay taxes on the dividend, true. Pay taxes on the dividend. But yes. if the company buys back their own shares, and the stock price goes up you're not taxed on that company buying back the shares so in a way it's like it's it's a weird mix with staking because it's kind of like a dividend but it's also like they're buying back shares and increasing the value and also if
4: a coin splits like if Bitcoin split into Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash you you technically wouldn't pay taxes on that either even even though you've doubled your coins so that's it's kind of interesting it's 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 a weird precedent but i, th- I think this is a good sign i it, that seemed to me like what moved the price a little bit higher at least what started it everything else it just seems like it's trading on technicals it's constantly up and down but like nothing fundamentally changed at least not that i've noticed
2: but i don't know yeah i, I mean know. uh bitcoin bottomed it was just a few weeks ago it was 33 if i recall
3: yeah, yeah. and uh I've just been buying consistently every single day. Just like I go in and buy, buy the S&P 500. I go in and I buy 50-50 Bitcoin, Ethereum. yeah. And um, yeah, I, I was actually kind of, now I'm kind of upset. It's always when the price goes up, I'm upset I didn't buy more. When the price goes down, I just keep buying. I just, I ignore it. But
4: uh, I put in a, an extra $100,000 into it when it dipped to like 38
3: or something, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the difficulties. There's no telling though with that. Like you could drop in 100k and it drops to 29. Yeah. And yeah. wow,
4: well.
2: Gotta gotta buy the dip of the dip. <laughs> <laughs> like run out of money. <laughs> Yeah. The funny thing is every time every time Bitcoin flips and and does a nice uh, a nice run, like I always get sent something. Like somebody sent me one today. It's like Bitcoin's going to 200k by the end of this year. It's like every every time, man, I feel like people jinx it by doing that stuff. It's like if it's going up just just don't say anything. Don't say 100k, don't say 200k, don't say 500k. Just,
0: just, yeah, just it's so it
4: crazy, man.
2: Like it, it, depending
4: on what time you choose to say it, it, you either look like a genius or like an idiot. Like mm-hmm. I remember making a, a video about Safe Moon, and at the time, people were like, "Oh yeah, Andre, you're you're right. Safe Moon, people should be careful. And then it shot up to like a ridiculous price. I don't know if you can uh, throw up a Safe Moon graph on on the screen, but it shot up. and I had a couple of like YouTube content creators make videos about how, I'm so dumb and how I shouldn't have You made a video about telling people to be careful about SafeMoon. <laughs> and now I look back at my SafeMoon video and people were like, wow, this guy's a genius. <laughs> so it's like, you're a genius one day and you're an idiot the next. It's just, that's just crypto and that's just how it goes. But
2: Wait, hey. But Andre, you're telling me I missed out on a 277,000% return. That's what you're telling me? On what, SafeMoon? Yeah, that's what it said. 200, Coinbase says 277,000%. Man, how do they miss out on that? Because oh. where are they taking the measurement from? Zero? Or <laughs> it's like zero
3: pretty much. it's like the first day of trading when it was worthless.
2: Yeah, like no
3: kidding. It's going to be up 2,000%.
2: Yeah, yeah, 277,000%, guys. If we just win all in that, whew, we might have more money than Coinbase. <laughs> hey, hey,
3: we make millionaires. Out of billionaires.
0: <laughs> That's doing in that show. Uh,
3: It is. Uh, it is interesting, by the way. I'm looking at the price of Coinbase stock and how closely it correlates to uh, Bitcoin. Oh, it's you almost one. Almost one. exactly. Bitcoin goes up, Coinbase goes up. Bitcoin goes down, Coinbase goes down. I've yeah. never understood why the two are so correlated. So there we have Coinbase, and if you do a one year chart, take a look at that. Get a good image of that. Just take a mental snapshot of of Coinbase. Then look at the one year chart of Bitcoin. It's going to look exactly identical. This never made any sense to me because I'm thinking if Bitcoin's going up, people are just as likely to keep buying Bitcoin as they are when it's going down. Look at Mm -hmm. that. It's the same thing. We have the same peaks, the same lows, the same everything of this. Yeah,
4: because every asset in crypto follows Bitcoin. So it kind of makes sense. Most of these companies are deriving their profit from Bitcoin. So it kind of makes sense that it follows it so much. Um yep. it's not really Ethereum yeah. or Gushcoin, it's just, it's all Bitcoin. I know.
3: But this, but it could create a good, I think, maybe a good opportunity for Coinbase um for their stock if it drops to a point where Bitcoin is at a low and their stock mm-hmm. is at a low, regardless yeah. of where it's trading. I think but it just think seems like you are not diversifying brokerage
4: yeah it just seems like you're not diversified at that point that, that's my whole thing like I bought Coinbase and I'm like ah like, oh, did I just buy should I have just bought more Bitcoin instead
0: <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> yes and if you're gonna buy Bitcoin you have FTX down below in the description that's right links yeah. down below
4: <laughs> plug pump it
3: <laughs> yeah but yes chances are you're if you're investing in crypto companies you're man you're maybe better off just investing in Bitcoin I don't know. Is it like, you know, in, invest in the gold or the shovel? Mm-hmm. The only time right. is going to tell them
2: that. Yeah. The way I see it is, is, uh, you know, there's only really two crypto companies I track. Uh, one is Voyager, which I own that stock in Voyager. I expect that to like 1.5 X, whatever Bitcoin does. So if Bitcoin goes up, I expect it to go up like 1.5 times. If it goes down 1.5 times down, uh, Coinbase, I will say with Coinbase, although right now it's, obviously very, very closely correlated to Bitcoin price. Longer term, Coinbase could break out into its own thing and kind of do its own thing, not just because of all the different crypto opportunities, but like, you know, uh, NFT marketplace and those sorts of opportunities. Short term, the stock market's not going to appreciate that. I don't even think hedge fund managers have any clue like what NFTs are or how that works or how a marketplace would work or anything like that for FTX or anybody that's doing this, right? Longer term, um, I think they'll eventually get it. It's just they have to really see the money start to flood in. for that, they have to see the revenue, they have to see the net income. And until they see that, they just don't quite get it. It's like when fa- when when uh, meta platforms, Facebook went public, people didn't even understand social media. They're like, what is this thing? Like, what is this? And Facebook dropped over 50% from IPO. And once the revenue and profits started to come in, then then all of a sudden Wall Street got it. But until they gets to that point, I kind of like, huh, I, I don't get yeah, it. Like it how,
0: of- how does that work?
3: of reminded me of my career as a real estate agent and people always thought if the market was down that was bad for agents oh the market's down that means uh you must not be doing that well but truth be told we all we really cared about was uh was just transaction volume i mean sometimes when the market's down is some of the best times because more people are buying and selling and and you make money on those transactions and with coinbase or or ftx or really with any of these exchanges it's not so much as the price high or low it's how many what's the turnover Every 24 hours. And the more turnover, I think the better it is. So at so some point, I think that's got to be reflected.
4: When it comes to explaining the great market reset, do you guys think that now is a good time typically to buy some real estate for anyone looking?
2: Graham, yeah. you want to take that one? Say it again. <laughs> <laughs> Andre's asking if it's a good time to buy real estate right now.
4: Yeah. Is now a good time to buy real estate, or do you think that people should be a little bit more defensive and save a little bit more?
3: The hard part is just finding a deal. Um, that that's always been the, the biggest obstacle with finding with finding good real estate. And that's something for me. Even I remember, like two thousand sixteen, it would take me like six months to find one property that I was confident in that I could make money from it. Now mm-hmm. it's that much harder. So imagine trying to look for you know a needle in a haystack. It not every property is going to make a good investment. You got to be really careful with the numbers. But I think long term locking in a rate now it seems like that that's the current trajectory a lot of people want to get into real estate now because they're like interest rates are going to rise so i better lock one in now it's better for me to right. buy now i mean i wouldn't be surprised if real estate prices were to soften i would be surprised if more inventory comes on the market they got to build more homes and builders they're 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 like frothing at the mouth right now for just basically more material because as a builder like you want to take advantage of that and if you don't capitalize on this now you you might miss the opportunity. So I wouldn't be surprised over five years as more inventory comes on the market. I don't think prices can continue rising, but I I do think there are good opportunities. I think the biggest opportunity is probably for landlords because Mm. rents are only continuing to go up. That's gonna be the the next, forget this housing crisis, forget prices going up for, for home values. I think over the next year, it's gonna be rents. That's gonna be a major issue for so many people. Because the fact is we can't have housing prices be up 35% without rents increasing somewhat of a proportional value. Right. It doesn't make sense because you're, you're paying 35% more for a house, now your overhead is higher. Now labor right. is going to be more expensive, materials are more expensive. Even going and fixing, I'm, I'm fixing a rental property right now. And right. the cost is doubled, literally doubled what it should have costed a few years ago. So I'm paying wow. double on a renovation. I can't rent it at the same price I used to because then it wouldn't make financial sense. Then I may as well just sell it. So either so rents have of, to go
4: up. Yeah. So that's like kind of a conflicting signal because like on one hand, you're right, prices can't go up forever. But on the other hand, if you're hedge funds like BlackRock and you have all this cash, you, you need to make some return for your investors. You're making or, money on
3: rents though. So here's, here's, my, here's my point. Home, home values have, have gone up a ton. Yeah. Rents have lagged. So, we're going to see rents catch up to where home prices were. A lot of rents are probably lagging by about one to two years. So, whatever we see in values, give it another year for those leases to expire. Sometimes, two years, leases expire. People renew their leases and they realize all of a sudden, and landlords realize that uh, it's costing them more. Insurance is more, property tax is more, everything is more.
0: So Jeremy. That has to
3: get baked into the cost of the house. What's going on, man? Well, okay. So I I just got a thought when
2: you you guys were talking about rent skyrocketing, I wanted to see my original apartment that I got in 2011. I wanted to see how much that apartment is now. So I rented that uh, for $750 a month and that included, I think trash and everything, one bedroom apartment. Uh, back then it used to be called the Metro at Zanhero. It is right by Cabela's and, uh, Westgate in Arizona. People from Arizona will know what I'm talking about. But anyways, I just looked at it now, $1,600 a month for that same apartment. Wow. Oh, you know what I mean? Like, like when I moved in there, when I got the, when I got the job at quick trip and I was making like 40 grand a year, I could live there comfortably and save money and invest some money and everything like that. Right. And, um like now i just think about it and i'm like oh my gosh like how would i have even afforded that place or had any money to, to put to the side it would have just taken it it's crazy man
0: Jeez. yeah it's,
2: it's sad to know that people now are competing with hedge funds
4: like that's not fair but that's just the they're world not world.
3: i i don't know people always get upset at me when i defend a defend the hedge funds they're not bu- they're not buying a lot of the houses that are on the market right now they're, they're buying huge lots of properties and you know, even though you, you could argue that hypothetically those homes could have been sold off individually, most of the time they were never for individual sale. And uh, most of the time they, they were either built in large communities that were meant to be resold or they were always purposed as a rental. So if anything, I'll, I'll be, and I will be—I could be totally wrong here, but if anything, I think that they would uh, have probably a higher standard of uh, habitability than a lot of Small landlords would. And again, I'm just, I'm, that's, that's probably more so a guess of just observation, seeing like large man, management companies versus mom and pops. Seen a lot of mom and pops, they just, they're, they're horrible. They'll just let anything break. They don't want to fix it. They don't want to spend the money. They do the cheapest repair. Uh, the management companies are usually pretty on it because they have to be, because they could get sued.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently.
4: Have you increased any of the rents on your um, tenants?
3: Uh, There's yes and no. There's one tenant who's moving out, uh, who's, believe it or not, moving to Texas. And so that one, that one I've not, I've raised the rent, uh, but only because it was so low to begin with. So I have to, to to some degree, but now that it's going to be vacant, I'm going to re-rent it at market value minus like 5%. What's your highest rental
4: monthly, uh, I guess? price for any one of your properties? Like what's the highest you charge monthly?
3: 5,500 a month. And $5, even that-
4: How much, what's
3: your property even value? That's low. Uh, property value, well, here, my cost basis is still low. That that place I bought for 585 and I- Oh my spent God. Like, I, well, I spent like 250 fixing it up. Now it's probably worth between one one and one two. And the rental rate is probably worth more like 65, 67.50. I got a that's great tenant beautiful. in there. They're, aw- they're awesome.
4: But yeah, that's crazy.
2: <laughs> yeah. 5,500 in Vegas, man. I'll get you a mansion. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Won't get you as much as it used to be able to get you back in the day. Actually, I don't even know. You might not be able to get a mansion for 5,500. You might have to go over 8,000 now. 5,500. 5, for 5,500 now, you can't get anything decent for 50 in Vegas. Wow. It's crazy. Wow. You used to be able to get like a sick house in like seven hills for like yep. $5,500, dollars 6 not, K, anymore. Or, like, not anymore. Yeah. Back this is in a,
3: my day. Yeah.
4: <laughs> big question is like, how long can this, like, will this keep getting worse or or are we going to like come back to, you know, the good old days where we were paying like
2: it? will get. So that, that's, a, that's a tough part. People are like, um, I want it to alleviate, you know, like rents come down, uh, housing yeah. prices drop, all those things like that. Okay. You know what's going to happen? We're going to have a huge recession in order for that to happen. And then people are going to be out of jobs and they're not going to be able to afford the rent anyways of the mortgages. So you end up in a, in a situation where it's like, okay, yeah, housing prices drop. If housing prices tank, that means the economy collapsed. And then people are out of jobs or they can't make any money. And the person that has a business and used to make 150K, now making 50K. And so you, you end up still kind of being in a bad position. It's just like, what type of bad position you want? unemployment, high food stamps through the roof? Or do you want a, a situation where, um, you know, people have good jobs, make good money, but then can't afford it. Either way, you're, you're getting caught, man. It's it's, right. it's tough.
4: I'm asking it's you the real question right now. You are your own pal. You're in control of the Fed. What do you do?
2: Uh, leave my job and uh, start making <laughs> an <YouTube. laughs> retire <It> makes <laughs> a <lot> of money. <laughs> <laughs> you <become a> YouTuber? <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. Imagine, no, uh, if he,
3: imagine if he made YouTube videos. What's up you guys? It's Jerome here. So today we're going to be talking all things inflation, pricing power and supply chain bottlenecks. Make sure to subscribe down below, hit the notification bell. You'll keep you updated on all the supply chain bottlenecks. <laughs> imagine like he uh, could be like a, a clear value tax. Yeah, like, yeah. today we're going to be about the supply chain and inflation update as of, you know, yeah, that's As what I was fun, gonna sorry. say. For 80, 3, 1, likes, the
0: rates. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah! If we could get this
3: video to fifty thousand likes, I'm not gonna raise interest rates for another week. <laughs> <laughs> Click Jeez. the link down below to get my merch. <laughs> <laughs> Sign up for well, FTX. I would love that. <laughs> I would love. It. It's unfortunately I, we're never gonna see that, but
4: that would be fun. Oh, for real. Like, what do you guys do? Because have you have you seen those comments that are like, oh, end the Fed. Do you think that's something we should do, end the Fed?
2: Is that a thing? <sighs> uh, I think that could get real. Ma- I mean, it's impossible nowadays to end, end the Fed if that's a, a thought. It's literally impossible. Um, and uh, no matter what, you end up in all these situations, right? It's like if you don't have the Fed, you know, I, I don't know what would have happened to the economy. You know, we, we would have certainly collapsed the economy likely, right, in in obviously the Rona situation what would we have gone to, you know, a sustained unemployment rate of 25, 30, 40%, Would that have been in like a good situation. Um, you know, in, instead we had a situation where, yeah, housing got more expensive, stocks got more expensive, crypto got more expensive, um, but everybody's, you know, it's it's very easy to get a job right now and that pays pretty decent wage. Um, would you rather have a situation where there's massive amounts of people are unemployed right now? And then how do those people make it? Um, if if you know, it, how do people make it right now? Like, let's say you lose your job, there's unemployment, there's all those sorts of things, right? There's like the government can kind of bail you out, take care of you healthcare wise, um, you know, food stamps, all those sorts of things. If that's not in place, like how, how do you think those things are in place? Those things are in place because of the Fed pretty much at the end of the day, um, you're just issuing more debt and things like that. And so you take all that away and then there's no there's no backstop to anything. And so, you know. Okay. That's, a, that's a great pol- political answer, I love it. Graham, <laughs> what do you I don't mean? think it's political. I think it's straight up. Like, no, like what, good, what is, you like,
4: outlined. Yeah, you outlined like pick and choose. What do you want? You want this or that? Like that. That that makes. Yeah, sense. yeah.
2: Well, so okay, that's yeah. why I, I like. If if you're looking for me to take a stance, you got to keep the Fed. Otherwise, everything's going to end up way worse than okay. than whatever the
4: situation was. So. But I'm just saying, if you were your own pal, like, what would you do?
2: Yeah, I think they I think they got to raise a quarter point uh, in the spring just to to test the waters. And and then I think you got to see how companies react, how the overall economy reacts to that. Um, And if everything's still going copacetic, uh, then go ahead and raise another another quarter point in the summertime. And then I think you just got to keep constantly monitoring how the situation is. And if everything's looking pretty good, keep raising a quarter point. If it if inflation keeps picking up, then raise a half point. At, at a time instead of a quarter point, so. Graham, what would you do? You're Jerome Powell.
3: Yeah, I don't know. Um, I would honestly, I I would believe inflation's coming down. So I would delay raising rates as, as long as possible. I would I would probably do the quarter percent, take a wait and see approach. If supply chains are getting better and you use that as your opportunity to say, listen, things are getting better. We're, we're just gonna see how this plays out. We can always raise rates if we need to let that go until the end of the year. If if things are still high, raise it another quarter of a percent. I, I take mm-hmm. a very easy approach.
2: Okay, you'd be a dove. What, yeah, think what, what are you thinking, Andre?
4: Oh, man, I have a very uninformed opinion that you guys can find. That's like, oh, that's dumb. I, I would say that I would be very transparent with everything I'm planning to do. So I would tell people like, hey, guys, and I would speak in like the, the dumbest, simplest words, like I'm talking to a five-year-old. I'd be like, here's the chart I pay attention to. You see this number right here? This is unemployment. We need it to be here. If it gets there, this is what I'm gonna do. If it goes there, this is what I'm gonna do. And this is based on today's situation, what I've committed to do on March so-and-so. I would just be 100% transparent with exactly what I'm going to do and when. That way I'm not scaring the markets into guessing I'm not going to pivot last minute like i don't see any harm in just being transparent fully and just telling people what metrics i'm looking at and just letting people like full stop know exactly how i'm informing my decisions and i feel like if people knew there would be so much less fear and volatility in markets that's the biggest fear of people like they just don't know what he's going to do and i don't know Mm -hmm. why it has to be so like us versus him it doesn't have to be that way and that's what creates these like rumors and like, oh, and the Fed and like, oh, they're evil. It's like, no, they're not. They're trying to do a good job. But like we, we think they're evil. It's just that they're just not transparent. Um, and, and because of like the I, I don't know, the, the the verbiage of finance is just so heavy and like tough to understand for the average person. It just creates these wild stories that we have to like. That's how we understand. It's, it's like in magic. There's this saying I don't understand magic. But I also don't understand how magnets and tape work or so, so, so magic is tape and and magnets. So it's like, it's like, you you take things you don't understand and you're like, this is how it works. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that way. So I just wish there was a little bit more transparency.
2: It would be nice to, if, if they could break things down easily. I think they are fairly transparent when it comes to I mean, they, they have the press conferences, they explain things. I think there's probably a lot of people that don't understand what they're saying, essentially, which I can understand. It'd be nice if they could break it down in a simpler manner. But yeah. also, it gets very hard to, for the Fed to forecast what they're going to do, let's say, six months from now or even three months right. from right. now or especially like a year for from sure. now because sure. the economy is so dang complicated. And like you have so many, many moving parts. World? tell me
4: what you're looking at so I can follow with you. Like, can you tell me like, what chart are you looking at? Are you looking at employment? I mean, like GDP, like what can I look at and what numbers do you want to see? And if you see the number you want to see, what will you do? Like, let me know ahead of time what the guidance is and that way we can all be on the same page. And even if then he does something different, at least the market will be like, oh, well, it makes sense. Things changed and whatever. But like, we're not guessing. Now it's like you remember those like dots they leave on the Federal Reserve. It's like, well, this person votes here and these person It's like, why is it so complicated? Can we just all come together and agree on like based on this thing? That's silly.
2: Yeah, it would be nice for them to break it down. That's why I think I appoint Graham Stephan to be the next chairman of the Fed. Congratulations, Graham. You're going to break it down simple for the people. The people. Yeah, I, just,
3: I just don't like how it's become a political uh a political kind of tactic of, of playing both sides. And uh, it would be nice to to feel more comfortable that they are a neutral party, but um, you, you never know. And that's where I think a lot of people find some hesitation in the Fed.
0: Mm-hmm. But
4: then, yeah, yeah that, that's what creates these crazy stories and conspiracy theories of like, is he on our
2: side or whose side is he on?
0: It's like... Uh. <laughs>
3: Yeah. uh I
2: have, I have a friend he used to love jay powell but then he went skiing a week ago and he put on his instagram story that he said jay powell is not his friend anymore and he was very sad about it and um yeah so
4: but, but it's crazy to me that like people are like i know some people say like oh well you know jerome can't make it so easy for investors to know where markets are moving but it's like the stock market is not the fed like that it is nothing i mean it it does really it does unfortunately but like at the core of it that's not what drives company growth and profits it's it's innovation it's creating things and and so it's it's crazy how disconnected we've gotten from actual creation and innovation and just like what the fed says it's yeah
2: a hundred percent it's a fed obsession i i got an interesting thought for you guys and and i, I can't remember who brought this up recently but it's in regards to real estate market, because obviously we're in a hot market. And I know earlier we're talking about what happens with real estate, can it stay hot like this? And they are saying, okay, let's imagine a scenario where the Fed continues to raise the Fed funds, right? Let's imagine a scenario where mortgages, uh, mortgage rates continue to climb, let's say another percent or 2% over the coming years, right? They're saying that could make us into even a worse housing situation because no one's gonna wanna leave their mortgage because almost everybody that's got a mortgage has likely refinanced at twos and threes. And if all of a sudden you get out of that mortgage, go buy another house and you're at a four or a five or a six, well, that a lot of people just wouldn't want to do that. Right. Um, and so that could make the, uh, supply situation for housing even worse. you guys got any thoughts about that? Hmm. What do you think? Andre? Uh, this is what creates
4: those conspiracy theories. That's like, whose side are they on? Really? Do they want us to like <laughs> afford houses or do they want to stay in houses forever? And I don't know it's a um, I, I, like I said, I think trans just be transparent, just tell people the guidance and what things you're looking at. And I, that way people would know, but maybe that's a very naive answer and I don't know what I don't know.
2: So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I think when, once you start to understand the complexities of the global economy, I think you start to be humbled a bit and, uh, start to realize, oh, this, this crap's a lot harder than, than it looks like. Um, yeah. cause oh, you, that well like literally say just say that like hey guys we didn't do what we said we would
4: even though you expected us to because the economy is really complicated and we can't p- predict geopolitical <laughs> conflict nations like people would understand my is like is that a naive way of thinking I,
2: don't I know. think I think when you're in a major position of power you you never want to say that imagine if a presidential candidate came out and said that They're like oh, oh sorry that guys guy. I would vote yeah. for that
3: guy so yeah, proud. You wouldn't understand it. No big deal. Just, tr- just trust it. Too complicated. Yeah, No,
4: no, no. no. A no, dude no. that says, I don't know the answer to that. How often do you come across a person in power who's humble enough to say, I don't know the, the answer. We're going to try it's our best. And that, that's, that's why problem. those people
2: never win elections, Andre. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. Is it though? I'm yeah, <laughs> pretty the sure. Year, a politician said that and was like that. I don't remember.
0: I don't they know. they like people
4: the to. That's a problem.
3: Again. I think just people want easy answers and they and they want the confidence. If you go in mm-hmm. with the confidence and an true. easy answer, oh yeah, inflation's gonna go down into the year. True,
4: true. Yeah, not it. saying you that strategy necessarily for running, but if you are true. in power, is is it so wrong to just say, like, hey, listen, we're doing our best. We don't know exactly what's gonna happen, but based on what we do know today, this mm-hmm. is what we're gonna do.
2: It's like yeah. okay, it makes sense. Yeah, no 100%, but no, I I think you guys avoided my question there. I'm asking, you know, if you think the real estate market can be hurt essentially by rates going up or do you think that's a really a, a non-factor? Like let's say mortgage rates are 2% higher at this time next year uh than they are currently, is are we in a situation where that hurts the demand or excuse me, the supply of homes out there because a lot of people are like I'm not moving because I can't move because the mortgage rate I would have to pay on my new property is so much more expensive than the current one right well that's a good question
3: yeah uh well a lot of people thought that when uh gosh when was it they had like 2015-16 when rates bottomed and everyone was locking in these like three percent mortgages we experienced uh a shortage of houses on the market because people did not want to leave and get rid of that mortgage because they locked in for 30 years at three percent and rates are now four and a half percent You're like, well, if if I sell this, then I'm getting a 4.5%. That's a bad deal. So you had a lot of people either choose to stay uh, or they would rent it out. Mm -hmm. So I think either way, I mean, it's it's probably not good for housing prices, but it's it's good for homeowners and landlords.
4: Yeah. It probably won't force people to sell, right? If anything, they'll just stay in and probably not want to buy anything new.
3: Correct. I mean, if usually- the average person anyway stays somewhere between 8 and 13 years when they buy a house, mm-hmm. depending on the area. To get to yeah. my,
2: my, my bigger point there, Andre, is we have a, a, a supply problem of homes. If you're mm-hmm. trying to buy a home right now, um, it is incredibly hard because the, the, the supply is so low right now. There's so few yeah. homes in the market. And if you raise interest rates more, mortgage rates, People are even less incentivized to move, which creates potentially the situation of of supply even worse. So, yeah. ah, man, messy. It seems, like,
4: it seems like the only way that I guess people would be forced to sell something is not necessarily with interest rates going up. It's it's more so like not interest rate fluctuation, but more so just incomes disappearing or jobs, you know, unemployment. Interest rates have less to do with people's. I don't know decision whether to move or to buy something new i feel like if it makes sense for them if if four percent makes sense for you and you found your dream home and you found a good deal they'll buy it but with with employment and incomes it it just seems like to be the thing that affects people the most so i don't see prices coming down either
3: yeah let's talk briefly about earnings because we had some interesting earnings today and uh jeremy Mm -hmm. i'm sure you have a lot to say about earnings this week Cause I've been watching Enphase. That's been a company that I've been invested in now for over two years, had a blow. I couldn't believe it. Uh, I was, I was, I, I nibble every now and then on stocks that have been hit hard. Enphase is one of them. And now in the after hours, it's up 15%. They've wow. Strong, strong numbers as a solar company. Yeah. Enphase. You can see. Wow. Andrew, I feel like
2: shows. I've heard this name before. I think somebody pitched me the stock on the show before. Somebody what? I'm pretty sure somebody pitched me this stock before on this show, and I asked them a lot of questions about it.
3: Yeah, so. Well, listen, it's, a, it's a, I think it's a good long-term hold. You want to play over 5, 10 years. I like Enphase, and that's been one of the few stocks that I've – again, you know, I, I try not to buy individual stocks right now, but that's been one of the few ones that's, uh you, you buy every now and then. With the price is <laughs> down. You have a little extra cash. You're like, what can I do with it? You buy a little bit more. I, I love it.
2: Graham. We're slowly turning you to the dark side, slowly. You're like, I think it's a good five to 10 year play. Next thing you know, you're going to be playing the candles, Graham. You're going to be playing (laughs) the candles.
3: All right, so this is going to go up for 10 minutes here, and then we're going to sell and we're going to buy back in four (laughs) minutes later when it hits this line. (laughs)
2: Look at this
4: RSI level, it looks great. looks like a setup for a Fibonacci sequence.
0: (laughs) Oh,
2: gosh, this this is too good. No, that's good to know. In Chipotle, uh, Chipotle had a nice earnings, I saw. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw that one. It, we, we ate Chipotle last night and I thought, man, instead of eating Chipotle, we should've ate ramen noodles and put our money in Chipotle stock because Chipotle went up even more, which Chipotle is one of the most simple stocks. And if you look at its performance, I don't know, Alex, pull up the max chart for Chipotle if you don't mind. Um, because you know, that look at where the stock was at, let's say 2010. I remember that's like the first time I had Chipotle was probably around 2010 or so. And, you know, it was like a $100 stock back then and, uh, you know, one of the how simplest. standing do they have? This is expensive. It looks like an expensive stock. They have like <laughs> 10 shares. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 a four, yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. It's a it's like a after hours, it's like a 45 billion dollar market cap. So um it's a it's a crazy big company. But you think about how simple it's why, like in the stock market, you don't need the most complicated business models to make a fortune. Chipotle, like, you know, I remember my first time going there and I was like, oh, this is this works. Like this is good. I should have just bought the stock. You know, it was a hundred dollars a share. It's one thousand five hundred or whatever today. You know, it's it's incredible. Um, you know, what some of these business models can do that truly have it like that. But uh yeah, and then uh, Corsair reported after the earnings, uh, or excuse me, after the bell. Finally and uh, Yeah, you said what? I'm sorry, finally up. Well, oh on what Course Yeah. Corsair, yes. How would you go up on Corsair? I thought
4: you were down. It but today it's up 6%. Yeah, no, the stock. Oh,
0: the stock oh I thought yeah, know, yeah. but Jeremy, everyone lost money it in Corsair. Though. Yeah, Everyone's no, yeah. Down yeah. On that, Corsair was, still.
2: that was not a good recommendation. <laughs> I was like I was like how are you up? I was like I thought maybe <laughs> you like did a, a million dollar buy-in at like 18 the other day or 17. And I was like, I'm going to average my way to zero. That's my sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. But yeah, Coursera had uh, really strong earnings. They beat by $15 million on revenues. They beat by 10 cents on EPS and uh, they guided for just slightly better what analysts were expecting. So uh, really happy with the Corsair numbers. Stock was moving up nicely after hours and then all of a sudden somebody dumped a ton of shares all at once after hours. Like in within a minute, it went from up like almost 7% to down 12% in like literally a minute. It was incredible. Uh, and then it came bouncing back, it, it showed resilience and it finished after hours at 2% down. Why is TTCF down 15% in the last month? Was that just the whole small cap destruction thing? Or yeah, it like, oh, that's yeah,
0: part everything.
2: Of it? Yes, yeah, almost everything kind of got destroyed. Um, the the chef and just about everything, uh, you know, the Russell, For instance, uh, as of this is about a week and a half ago, the Russell was in bear market. I don't think a lot of people picked up on it, but the Russell was down uh, about 21 percent, which over 20 percent you're in a bear market. And so the Nasdaq didn't quite hit bear market. The S&P was far from bear market and the Dow was far from bear market, but the Russell hit bear market. So the small caps just got hit really strong. And I think this earnings season is going to be really important to watch the smalls, because if the smalls start to come back that's going to likely signal that uh, we're, we're close to the bottom or we've already reached the bottom because this is how the market always goes. The smalls, the, small, the more speculative stocks get hit the first and then, you know, then the mids get hit. Then the last gets hit is what just got hit recently. Mega caps, large mm-hmm. caps, PayPal, Amazon still $500, $600 off 52 week highs, uh, meta platforms, all those square big caps have gotten nailed and um, coming out, the first thing that starts to prosper is the small caps. And so if we start to see some moves up, you know, uh, I think that's uh, bullish for the overall markets. But we'll, we'll see what happens. Well,
4: Jeremy, mm-hmm. the video that you and I did together, I threw out a really interesting statistics uh, statistic for people that, that I think is kind of relevant, which is um, of the uh, between 1869 to 2018, there were 30 recessions. OK, yeah, of those 30. 16 of them had a positive stock market return from when they started to when they finished. So it's isn't it crazy that you can be like a brilliant macroeconomist. And even if you knew 100% by looking at some indicator that there was a recession, even if you were right, the odds of you losing money is less than a coin flip. Yeah. <laughs> it's more. Yeah, uh, more, my bad. More.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a great thing you brought up in that video, Andre, because, you know, automatically you would say recession, I mean, yeah. that means
0: stocks, pull my money out, everything goes down. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. hundred percent. Um, a lot of times it has, it has to do with what actually happens in that recession. How bad does it get? How accelerated does it get? Um, you know, what's the current financial system, you know, uh, financial si- situation with the financial system. One of the reasons 08-09 got so ugly wasn't just because jobs were lost and, and housing prices skyrocket down, but because you know the whole banking system nearly collapsed. We had several of the biggest financial institutions in the world go down completely, you know, yeah. insolvent. And um, that that's why that one got so ugly and so nasty. And I think people automatically expect that to happen the next time we have a recession, a real recession. And um, you know, that doesn't mean that has to happen at all. Uh, I think that's what yeah. people miss, and then when you got Jer- guys like Jeremy Grantham and, and some folks like that, super bubble, we're going to fall eighty percent. You know, yeah. I'm not and, saying and, it's, not, it's not possible, but it's. Just, yeah,
4: but but I think the most important context to to walk away with here is that when guys like Jeremy Grantham are talking about this, uh, they are in a f- crazy different position with their billions of dollars, in in a way that they can try to use the like macro economy to predict and try to move money out of the markets, because if they lose, I mean, if they miss out on, let's say if they were wrong, right. And the market goes up 20%. If they miss out on a 20% gain, who cares? They still have billions of dollars. But I think for the average person who's saving for retirement, trying to use the macro economy to time the market in and out doesn't make any sense. Like it's not worth losing the upside for, just because you're afraid of a little downside. But if you're somebody yep. who already has a vast fortune you've accumulated over your lifetime that that's enough to last you for 20 lifetimes like some people are it's okay to to just sit out of the market for a couple of years who cares if you miss a 30% run up you still got millions your life's not changed
3: yeah but aren't they
0: <laughs> managing
3: money for aren't they manage, a lot of these guys are managing money for other people
4: true but i'm yep. just talking about the difference between super wealthy individuals and like the average person who's trying to time the market who's still accumulating wealth
3: I don't know. I, I don't think it, Matt, like if, if not timing the market works for a hundred dollars, the same as a hundred million. I don't know. Uh, I, I just, I think pretty much, that.
2: yeah, I, I pretty much agree with Graham. I think there's a couple things that I think people don't realize with, with folks like Jeremy Grantham and maybe others that make, you know, these crazy, you know, super bubble comparisons and you know, we're going to crash and all those things. One is I think uh, some of these guys really think about their legacy and, uh, they want to be that guy that like called it, right? Like, oh, I told you it was going to skyrocket. Like think about Michael Burry. He made the housing market call and now he's, everybody knows Michael Burry. That's in the financial markets. Like, oh, that's the guy that called the housing bubble. He had a movie made about him, Big Short. And, and yeah. people think about that from a legacy perspective. Right. Um, second thing is, you know, with somebody like a Jeremy Grantham, uh, he's a strict value investor with value stocks. And so somebody like him can become very, very jaded in this sort of market like we've had over the last decade plus, where he sees, you know, what's happened with Netflix and Tesla and Amazon and all these innovative companies that have prospered. And you could begin to you can become very, very jaded, um, you know, even if you look at something like VT, right, which is um total star, stock market index uh, worldwide. Right. Um, you know, something like that's barely doubled in the past decade plus. Meanwhile, you've had these uh, tremendous companies, you know, uh, 5X, 10X, 15X, 20X their stock prices, and you could become very, very jaded very, very fast because you're like, oh, why is everybody else making so much money and I'm not making money? And so I think that's just another factor to think about.
4: I'm I'm not sure how you disagree with me though. You were like, I I agree with Graham, chocolate is great. (laughs) But like, you didn't address what I'm saying. I'm saying there's a huge difference between someone trying to sit out of the market who's got tens of millions of dollars if that person yeah. does not get 30% upside, it doesn't matter. They've got $30 million in their bank account for the, I average,
0: think
4: for the average person who's still accumulating for retirement, it yeah. does not make sense to try to sell out and wait. It does not make sense.
2: Yeah, I agree with the second point, uh, Andre, but I disagree with the first point about it, it doesn't matter because you know it, it's in it's subjective to what the person thinks. I understand your concept of like it doesn't it's not going to change their financial life, but for a lot right. of people, it, they want to continue to climb, right? They they it you know making another ten million dollars is something yeah. that keeps people really excited. So you know I, I, I agree. You
3: know, if if I if I had a hundred million dollars and that was more than enough that I would ever need. I'd play right. it safer. I wouldn't be 100% in the s and I'd probably be 60% S&P, 30% in something else, 10% in something. Else. you know. Sure, I'm not maximizing returns, but also during a drawdown, I'd much yeah. rather be down 15% versus 40%. So maybe that means I'm holding bonds. Maybe I'm not maximizing things as much as I could. So th- that, that's my only thought. You get to a certain point, and it's more about preservation. That's my point. If yeah. you have
4: vast fortunes of wealth, you're at that point preserving it. And it doesn't matter what the market does because you're still taken care of. And I'm not saying there's not a happy medium in between. I'm not saying leave it all in cash and just never invest. But again, fundamentally different moves for someone who's got millions versus somebody who's still trying to make millions.
2: Yeah, I can I understand that concept. Uh, that's a good point, Andre. Um, yeah. So, you know, you guys making
3: any moves out there, anything, you know, you're just kind of just the normal plan. Mine is juicy. I'm buying S and P 500 Bitcoin and Ethereum. Oh, and then I'm still buying international. So, uh, so <clears throat> if I'm in invest- so for every three, $4,000, I buy in the S and buy about 11 $1, to $1,200 of international.
4: Wow. And I'm just, I've
3: just been doing that because I got to beef that up that, that I've always been underweight on that. So I, I just want to get international like 10 to 15 percent of my portfolio. Graham, is that inspired from like the three uh, three fund portfolio? You know, three fund approach. But also I think there's a lot of opportunity for international. I know people disagree with me on that, but I would rather take a 15 percent risk for international and in the meantime I'm getting paid a, a slightly higher dividends you know it pays like 1.6 mm-hmm. percent. i don't care but uh yeah that's cool may as well good diversification that's the way i see it for me right now i'm just like i felt like i, I kind of went 50 50 stocks and index funds and now i want to get that more so to you know 80 percent index funds i want to get a little bit more international so i'm just trying to like balance things out so that it's equal that's yeah. what i would think. that's cool Generally and andre
2: good normal normal stuff for you
4: (laughs) no I I, Graham and I are pretty much the same I'm not buying international I'm still buying um broad market index fund ETFs VTI VO same thing um dollar cost average every day Ethereum Bitcoin and with a little bit of speculation doing nfts uh making insane like money but technically I'm not because I'm not selling anything so I'm not realizing my gains and who knows like next month it could go you know, I could lose 50% of it, so maybe it's time that I realize some of those gains. But NFTs are kind of like my fun. I'm bored. I need to trade, but I don't want to be a stock trader. I, I like NFTs. I think <laughs> they're fun. I think the upside what, is much more.
2: What about loading the boat on some Corsair tomorrow, Andre? Come on, baby,
0: get get hey, some real Corsair.
4: shares. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I don't know. I'm I'm scared of buying individual stocks. Some, I, I, I buy them from time to time, but if I'm going to buy individual stocks, I'm going to buy like dividend stocks. That's, that's my favorite. Dividend stocks make sense to me.
2: Yeah. No, I, in stocks, you got to commit to to buying if it goes yeah. down. You know what I mean? Uh, your yeah. your approach to the individual stocks, Andre, is like the person that bought Bitcoin at like sixty five thousand and then it's dropped to thirty thousand. I'm like, oh, I'm not buying, you know, I'm, no, that's not, not true. It, it just it's it's like your thing with Facebook,
4: right? It's it, like, why aren't you buying more Facebook? It dipped like insane amount. It's because maybe there's better opportunities in the market. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, I I think there's better opportunities in things that I understand more in. And I know you know a lot about Corsair, whereas I, yeah.
2: I don't necessarily um, yeah. I can understand that. Yeah, I mean, it, at the end of the day, well, shoot, with the Spider-Man NFT, how much money you made off that? I don't think any yeah. stock can hold a candle to that, baby. So. <laughs>
4: True. Even though I technically didn't make it because I'm still, like, in the app, it's called Gems. There, there's no way to move your money from Gems to dollars. You'll be able to hmm. eventually, but in the meantime, that that is a huge risk you're taking, like, a big assumption that, you know gems. No,
2: I didn't know that. wait a minute. Can you explain that concept? I had no clue. I assumed you could sell that today and then you just got the money. It doesn't work like that? No, no, not quite.
4: So when you move money into the app, you can't con- so so you move dollars into gems. that's that's how you buy the collectibles. You, you don't buy them with actual dollars. but you can't uh-huh. use Omi, the cryptocurrency that underpins the app, because Apple is not going to let you use crypto mm-hmm. to buy anything inside of the app. It's just like Apple doesn't want you to use crypto, obviously. So uh, the way the workaround that they figured out is to convert dollars to gems, which is basically their stable coin. One gem is $1. The problem, though, is that you cannot convert your gems back to dollars. It's kind of stuck in this fictional in-app currency. Now, as long as you trust the team, the project, the licenses, the companies that are partnered with this, And you assume that that's coming with the MTL, the money transmitter license, which they have. Once they have that in, you have to understand, if you're buying collectibles that are $50,000 a piece and you allow people to withdraw them from your app, guess what you need to do? KYC and AML, right? Know your customer, any money laundering laws. They need those things in place. So before you get to move and sell your NFTs out to the dollar, the IRS wants a piece of that. And there's no way that companies like Disney and Marvel are gonna allow Vivi to just like willy-nilly move NFTs worth a hundred thousand dollars without the IRS knowing about it. So it makes sense that for now, you know, you can't do that, but you'll eventually be able to because the team just has every incentive under the sun to allow that.
3: Wow. That's a
0: huge trust. trust.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's a lot of trust.
4: not, not unlike believing that TTCF will someday keep growing and people will still eat frozen food. Not unlike
2: that. <laughs> no, no, no. This is a whole different type of risk, Andre. You're, you're hoping is, that someday maybe risk. you can get your money back.
4: <laughs> I, listen, I think all forms of investing, regardless if you're buying stocks or NFTs, require some form of trust and speculation. And it just depends on what that risk is for you.
2: Yeah, that's the biggest risk I've ever heard, you know. Personally, I can't think of anything bigger. No no disrespect. I don't mean that in a jaded way at all. I'm just like well, that's the craziest that? thing I've ever heard. That's well, true.
3: Let's talk about the biggest risk next week on <laughs> the next episode of Millennial Money. And if you're not, if you're not already subscribed, make sure to subscribe. Make sure to hit the like button and that way you could stay tuned for next week's episode on the biggest risk out there. It's going to be a good one. So thank you guys so much for watching. Make sure, by the way, to sign up for FTX down below in the description. It does help out our channel tremendously and you're going to be happy with your platform. So down below in the description, thank you guys so much for watching and until next time.
0: Peace.